2024 is the year of podcasts, and we want to let you know about a brand new show that is live right now. Join with me to share the good news about the Worthy of Everything podcast. It's just one of the two hosts, Jaja Lasso. Jaja, you've been working on this podcast in the background. Our team has been very excited as we've been preparing for its launch. How does it feel to know that the episodes finally are out there and we're moving forward every single week? It is so exciting and I am just excited to see where God takes it and I have so much hope that it is going to be an incredible blessing to the listeners. Amen, amen. But as I understand it, this is a show tackling the issues of mental health through the lens of the gospel. Can you share just a little bit more about the heart and the intent and who you're really trying to serve through the Worthy of Everything podcast? So I personally was freed from depression and as I've come to understand my freedom from sin and identity in Christ, I start to recognize all these amazing gifts that God has given us. So yeah, just exploring and hearing awesome testimonies about how to walk out true intimacy with a loving father who pursues his kids. Oh man, sounds like a good time. If you want to check out the show, lovereality.org slash podcasts and look for the Worthy of Everything show. The world doesn't think that the gospel can change your life, but we know that it can. And that's why we want you to hear these stories, stories of transformation, stories of freedom, people getting free from sin and healed from sin because of Jesus. This is Death to Life. It became this thing. It was like mental gymnastics where we obey because we love God. We can't question the rules. We can't break the rules. We can't bend the rules, but only God can judge if it's coming from, that obedience is coming from a heart of love. So I picked up my Bible again and I said, all right, God, I'm ready to give this another try. And as I began to read, it was like I was reading the word for the first time ever. So many truths just aligned so quickly in my mind. And, and I was excited. Yo, this is the Death to Life podcast. My name is Richard Young. And today's episode is with my new friend, Layla. Uh, I don't think I could have, if someone said, do you know Layla Green? Uh, a week ago, I probably wouldn't have, but I saw a Facebook post and then she came on uh, the Bible study last night and, and I was just moved to say, hey, let's uh, let's record a podcast. And so we just did. Layla, what is, what's the story about? What are, what are people going to hear in this episode? People are going to hear how my Heavenly Father took a girl that suffered with identity, with abandonment issues, with divorce, with codependency, with an unhealthy representation of God. Single parenting, anxiety, depression, and turned it into one of the most beautiful love stories ever. Hey, if that's not enough to get you to listen to this episode, I don't know what will. So uh, buckle up, strap in. Love y'all. Appreciate y'all. Man, this is real talk. God is loving on me. Colorful and innocent, that's on me. Got me standing in the light, and it's on me. It's a new heart, it's a new beat. It's a new thing, it's a new seed. So it's I've never met you, Layla. I think, I'm not sure if like the first time we talked was yesterday or was it a, like, have we, have you been on the Bible study a few times? Yeah, I've been on the Bible study a few times beginning in 2020 and no, we've never met. The first time was yesterday. So have you, have you had a chance to hear any episodes of the Death Alive podcast before? Absolutely. <laughs> it's become one of my favorite podcasts to listen to. What, what episodes, uh, stick out to you or have resonated with you the most um joel's most recently 
also Alicia um, and Will. Will Murphy? Yeah, Will Murphy. Wow. And Alicia. So you are a longtime listener, or you really, you have heard this thing. What, re- what resonated with you about Will's testimony? Just that aspect of, um, I guess, identity and his identity being wrapped up in all of these different roles, um, because I struggled a lot with that in my life. Hmm. Well, I mean, you know how the podcast usually goes. Yeah. Where, where would you, th- where do you think your story starts? Like, what's your background? Right. Well, let's start at the beginning. Childhood, huh? <sighs> sure. That's where it's you, so much of the, the stuff that we deal with. I mean, God bless our parents, but it ends up in childhood, right? Yeah, they tried their best. All right. So um, all the lies that I was told were tied to abandonment issues and identity issues. And all of those started for me pretty much right out of the womb. Um, The abandonment manifested itself in me believing that I wasn't enough um, and believing that I had to prove myself worthy of being chosen, worthy of being loved. Um, I didn't feel complete without a relationship, whether that was desperately attaching myself to mother and father figures or clinging to friendships that had died natural deaths um, or clinging to unhealthy friendships that should have died natural deaths. Um, I just had this insatiable need to be chosen Um, and not just chosen, but for people to prove to the world that they had chosen me. Hmm. And when it came to identity, Um, I recognized that I didn't realize who I was truly um, and to whom I belonged unreservedly. Um, And so that means that as I grew older, I found my identity in rules, in performance, in church, in titles, in being the good girl. Um, And it was only after God allowed sort of this deconstruction process to take place that I got to the end of myself and I really fell into the beauty of the gospel and found my identity as a daughter who'd been chosen from the the creation of the world to be holy and blameless. Wow. So how did this, uh, at what age do you believe that you were abandoned or what's the background there? Yeah. So um, abandonment came early in my life. Um, My dad had just turned 18 and my mom was two weeks away from her 16th birthday when I was born. Um, My dad was this PK who experienced a lot of trauma in his life. And he was just done with church and all that came along with it. And his sole interest was becoming a big rap artist in Atlanta. (laughs) Um, my mom grew up in the projects and shortly after I was born, my parents broke up and my mom went on to have two more children right after me. So if you can imagine this young 18 year old girl with three children, ages three and younger, and there were a lot of us that were just piled up in my mom's place that she shared with her mother and her sister, 
Um, And this place just became a revolving door for a lot of men that came and entered their lives. So up until the age of five, I was with my mom, but I would spend the weekends with my grandparents who were my dad's mom and stepdad. And those weekends included church attendance. So around the age of five, my mom pretty much gave me away. (laughs) My dad wasn't in the picture and my grandparents were awarded custody of me. And so I went to live with them and I had an amazing childhood in their home. Hold on. Where, uh, your, where do your grandparents, where did the, where did they live? So my grandparents lived in Alabama at the time I was born in Huntsville, Alabama. <laughs> and, uh, that's where they were, um, in the same city with my mom. And that's where my mom grew up and where she stayed. And my dad left the city to go to Atlanta, Georgia. So I'm, I lived in Atlanta for a while. Do you, do you, do you remember living in Atlanta? Um, I actually did live in Atlanta for about six months, <laughs> but aside from that, no, sadly, I don't have a lot of memories from Atlanta. So your parents linked up when they were both living in Atlanta? So my parents linked up as teens when they both lived in Huntsville, Alabama. But And so then when your pop took off, he took off to Atlanta and your mom still stayed in Huntsville. Yeah, my dad took off to Atlanta. My mom stayed in Huntsville. And my grandparents who were in Huntsville said, let us raise her. We'll give her a good life. So, yeah, tell me you, your your grandparents, uh, beautiful people that took you in and you had a wonderful childhood in that regard? Oh, yeah. My childhood was amazing. My grandparents were great. Um, They loved each other. They loved God. And in their household, God was not this event that took place once a week inside of a church. But God was like this experience. He was love. He was something that infused everything we did. My grandparents were always bringing in strangers from off the street and having them sit at our table, join us from dinner. They were um, really passionate about homeless people, about those addicted to drugs. And so um, we worked a lot in our community. We also went to church every Sabbath. I grew up in church, you know, singing all the songs and memorizing memory verses. And um, I took music lessons. I attended private schools. So my life with my grandparents was really great. And they did an excellent job of conveying to me that God was my father, that he loved me so much that Jesus died for me and that I was special. But um, as great as they were, what, what made them what made them the way they were? They had just lived a long time and had very real encounters with God and God's love. They had witnessed the transforming power of God's love in their personal lives. Um, My grandpa came from LA and he came from a lifestyle of being addicted to drugs and God just set him free from that and delivered him from that. And so he was really passionate about sharing that love with other people. Um, My grandmother had been a pastor's wife. She'd been divorced. (laughs) She left God for a little bit and she just experienced God wooing her back to him and loving on her. And so she also was very passionate about sharing that love with everyone she met. 
So these these are just some God-fearing folk that had seen the transforming power of God. Yeah. And they were able to testify of that, and that's why they just kind of operated the way they operated, huh? Yeah. They were amazing, amazing people. I am so grateful for them. And then, uh, so, you knew you were loved. Mm-hmm. Yet you still felt this... I don't know, how, how early of an age did you start to really feel this abandonment thing from, from your pop? Uh, well, unfortunately, it started really early. Um, as wonderful as my grandparents were and as beautiful as all those seeds of truth were, they were all juxtaposed to another part of my reality. And that was experiencing abandonment from both my mom and my dad. And so up until the age of seven, I remember seeing my dad only once. And after that short amount of time that I spent with him, which was about six months in Atlanta, I never saw him again. (laughs) I never spoke to him again until I was about 18 years old. Um, And as far as my mom is concerned, I would visit her on some weekends, but I always felt like I was this outsider who was trying to prove that I was worthy of being on the inside. I tried to be like my family. I was like, oh, I can learn that dance. I can talk like that. I can walk like that. I can try those foods. But most of the time I was treated very differently. And I remember just so badly wanting to be accepted by my mom, wanting to be accepted by my siblings, wanting to be hugged by my mom, wanting to hear her say, I love you, wanting her to visit me, to come to my recitals, to my graduations, to show up at my birthday parties. Um, I remember specifically one Christmas, and this actually happened several times, (laughs) Christmas Eve, I called my mom and I was like, hey, I really want to see you. I'm coming down tomorrow. I can't wait to spend time with you. I love you so much. I have all these gifts for you. And she told me, "Okay, I'm looking forward to seeing you. Come on down. We'll be here. And so my grandma drove me to my mom's house. And I remember excitedly hopping out of the car and banging on the door, waiting for her to open the door. And the door never opened because my mom had left. And this happened so often it wasn't anything new and so I just learned to accept nothing from my dad and to expect disappointment from my mom over and over again was it because she had forgotten or was it because she was scared or you know there was never a plausible um, explanation it was just oh yeah I knew you were coming (laughs) that was all that I got so she just, for whatever reason, would never show up. Okay, tell me if this resonates with mm-hmm. you. I was a, a college recruiter for many years. And so I would go to a lot of graduations. And there's parent tributes at these graduations. Yeah. And a lot of the time, you know, for a, a family with like a split home, where there was a divorce in the home. Um, the kid would be thanking the parent that was present. And he, would, he or she would say beautiful things about this parent that they lived with. But then when they got to the parent that was gone, 
that they didn't get to spend as much time with, they would say like the most crazy <laughs> over the top thing mm-hmm. about this parent. Mm-hmm. And as just kind of like, wow, you've been here for me and da 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 da, and you did all this stuff. And from the outside looking in, you know, for those people, like if I knew the kid and I knew the whole situation, it would seem like the kid was saying all of these things, but that they were like wishing that those things were true and those things actually didn't happen. Like, yeah, the dad wasn't really present. Mm-hmm. Did you project like that your mom had been there or were you already bitter at a young age Yeah, because of being hurt so bad? So I definitely can understand that compensation. But for me, I just accepted that my mom was just pretty much a nun factor. I wanted her approval. I wanted her love. I wanted her acceptance, but I just knew it wouldn't happen. And I had my grandparents and they were amazing (laughs) and they were consistent and they showed up for everything. So um, my mom and my dad, they were pretty much just non-factors for me. Did you really feel like it was because of you, like that you didn't have value and that's why your mom didn't come to the door? that she didn't care about you and it was about you not about her at that age i absolutely thought it had everything to do with me oh, man yeah um because i had siblings you know so she was with my siblings she cared for my siblings but when it came to me it's just like radio silence you know just no show so i thought You know, I have God. I knew God was love. I had my grandparents. My grandparents were great. I had church. Church was awesome. Um, But I truly felt like my parents don't want me. My parents gave me away. My parents don't love me. And that's when the lies really started being introduced into my life. And the main lie was Obviously, there's something extraordinary that you need to do to be accepted, to be loved, to be parented, to be wanted, to be chosen. And I just didn't know what that thing was or what those things were. I'm so sorry. This is sad. (laughs) It gets better. I'm so sorry. Uh, yeah. When something's really sad and I'm interviewing, I always tend to laugh. I'm sorry, but it's, it's okay. not. It's just like, gum. that's sad. Yeah, it's, it's okay. Um, no, I'm, you're telling me it's okay. <laughs> you're sweet. I'm like, dang, I'm feeling bad for this childhood or, or just this thing that you thought something was wrong with you. Yeah. Uh, so what happens as you're growing up, but, you know, you still keep going. Yeah. So I, I didn't really understand. I didn't fully understand as a child that abandonment was what I experienced from my earthly parents, but it wasn't who I was in my heavenly father's eyes. It wasn't my identity. And so, you know, my grandparents did an excellent job loving on me and teaching me that I was special, that I was royalty, that I could do anything I wanted to do, that I could be anything that I wanted to be, and that God had chosen me for something special. However, the Bible doesn't say when your grandmother and your grandfather forsake you, then the Lord will take you up. You know, the Bible doesn't Mm. say, can a woman forget her suckling grandchild? 
It says, when thy father and mother forsake you. And it asks, can a woman forget her suckling child? And personally, I believe that the semantics there reflect that special bond, um, even like at the hormonal and chemical level that the father created to take place between parents and their children. So believing those lies of needing to prove myself worthy of all the good things um, just perfectly set the stage for me to become a people pleasing rule follower, um, which further enabled me easily to transition into an interesting era that befell my grandparents' household. And this is when a lot of deception just entered our household and things took a turn for the worse. Hmm. In what form was the deception? Well, um, around the age of 10, my grandmother (laughs) fell into this extreme conservative side of Adventism. So... For us, that looks like adopting a very works-based driven religion. Um, We loved God with all our hearts, but now there were all of these additional rules that we felt we absolutely had to keep. And so I no longer could wear pants. I could only wear skirts. I remember I had to throw out all my Christian CDs because there were drums playing syncopated rhythms. Um, Our diet changed. I remember these debates taking place on whether Christians should swim at public places or whether men should wear suspenders or whether they should wear belts and just all of these things. The list just kept going on and on. I remember like we're eating two meals a day, six hours apart, being sure not to snack between meals and just on and on. We even moved from our home to seven acres on a mountain because we thought that Um, So this was around the time that Y2K went down. And so like everyone's stockpiling canned goods. (laughs) We're getting kerosene heaters, kerosene, and just um, um, preparing to live, you know, off the land and off the grid. So this fear kind of entered my life and my relationship with God. Um, I remember like feeling that I had to prove now to God that I was worthy of being loved, that I had to keep all of these rules so perfectly. And I liked the rules because for me, rules were great. They were easy. Everything was black and white. And if I followed the rules, I got rewarded. And if I broke the rules, then I got punished. And it became this thing. It was like mental gymnastics where we must obey the rules because we can't get to heaven without obedience, but the obedience has to come from a heart of love. And we obey because we love God. We can't question the rules. We can't break the rules. We can't bend the rules, but only God can judge if it's coming from that obedience is coming from a heart of love. So um, yeah, there were a lot of mental gymnastics. It was a lot of mayhem in our household. And um, it even kind of served as a wedge between my grandparents and they actually ended up splitting. And so now I was met with even more abandonment and just began to fall into this hole of darkness. They didn't agree on the rules or one of them was heavier on the rules than the other. What Do you believe that this was really kind of the culprit for their them splitting up? 
It was definitely a major culprit. Um, my grandpa wasn't really with all the rules. <laughs> He's like, we don't have to do all these things. You know, we just got to love God and believe in him and what he did for us. And my grandmother was like, no, 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 no. But, you know, we have to go to these conservative churches. We have to dress a certain way. We have to eat a certain way. We have to do all of these things. And so they just couldn't see eye to eye and ultimately ended up splitting. Wow. How old were you? You were 10 years old when this happened? Yeah, I was like between the ages of 10 and about 14. So did you understand why he was leaving or did you just think, man, why, why can't he just fall in line? Like these rules are good. I definitely understood, but I did question why he couldn't stay. Um, thankfully, I knew it had nothing to do with me. But, um, you know, I love my grandpa. He was my best friend. I wanted him to stay. But um, I could understand his perspective. Was your, was your grandma pretty devastated after the split? No. <laughs> She wasn't. She was pretty hard nosed, like, you know, all that the Lord says do, we're going to do. And she felt that all of these things were what God required of us. So, do you know why she had that opinion? Like, what, what was influencing her? Um, we were around a lot of really conservative Adventists who, um, I don't know, just their own, I guess, I'm sure they had the best of intentions, but their own skewed interpretations of God and what he required and their interpretations of the writings of Ellen White. And yeah, they just kind of jumped off the deep end there. Wow. So then what happened after that? Well, um, I became a teenager and I was not a rebellious teenager. <laughs> I loved God, but I kind of tiptoed around because I didn't understand what a gift salvation was. Um, I didn't understand the gift of salvation that's promised to those who believe, nor did I fully understand my identity in Christ and what that meant. Um, I was truly convinced that I'd only be loved and accepted as a daughter if I groveled for the Holy Spirit, if I begged for the Holy Spirit to help me keep all these rules perfectly. And the reality is I did want to keep a lot of these rules. You know, I wanted to be this good Christian church girl. Um, but yeah, my my image of God became pretty skewed. Our home life changed and it became one of ruleship rather one of relationship. And um, it just impacted my life in a really terrible way. And I began to experience a lot of emotional abandonment uh, from my grandmother at that point. And I just want to pause and say that I know that my grandmother loves me and I know she operated with the best of intentions and she wanted nothing more than to see me in heaven. But because of this shift, um, my emotional needs were not met. And the only approval and praise that I received was when it was behavior or when it was performance that was linked to God or linked to church. Um, my feelings were pretty much gaslit. 
Um, There was a lot of guilt tripping that was going on. I remember like if I would get upset about something, I was told, well, the servant isn't greater than his master. Jesus experienced these things. He experienced hardship. He experienced betrayal. And still he fulfilled his mission. So, you know, these human feelings, which are important, are from the devil. And you just need to rebuke them and be happy. And this is what I was told throughout my entire teenage experience. I'm betting that your grandma did not believe she was being legalistic at all, right? Nobody. Absolutely nobody, not. <laughs> nobody thinks that nobody who is legalistic yeah. believes that they're legalistic. Um, how did she, and maybe you can't answer this, how, how did she balance like that and then also righteousness by faith? Right. That's a really good question. And I don't know. And I feel that, well, I can only speak from my experience, but those who find themselves in these circles, they're kind of at war with themselves and at war with spirit because it's impossible to believe two things that are opposing to each other. But somehow we proclaim that we believed, you know, righteousness by faith and, and all of these beautiful teachings, but still live this very legalistic lifestyle. So you're in high school. Uh, where are you going to high school at this point? I was homeschooled. <laughs> you were homeschooled. Yeah. So you're in the mountains of Alabama? So we moved. Somewhere? Yeah, we moved actually to Tennessee. So we moved to this little tiny two-light town called Dunlap, Tennessee, uh, just like an hour away from Chattanooga. And we were up on a mountain on seven acres, just us and apple trees <laughs> and pear trees and grapevines and big garden and animals and chickens and all of that stuff. Um, yeah, but that's where I was homeschooled throughout middle school and high school. So how, so who was God to you at this point? God was still my father. God was someone who I knew loved me, but he also was someone to which I had to prove myself. Um, I remember I got baptized at 12 years old, and I remember right before my baptism, my grandmother took the Bible and she read through Deuteronomy, um, you know, where all the curses and blessings are listed for the Israelites. (laughs) And she read all of these things where basically, you know, if the Israelites chose to obey, they would live, they would be blessed. But if they chose to disobey, you know, boils would come, they'd lose their hair, their fields would not produce fruit or anything, and they would die. And so I remember listening to that and telling her, oh, yeah, I absolutely want to get baptized. <laughs> but I wanted to get baptized because I didn't want to suffer. I wanted to get baptized because I didn't want to end up in hell. And so I had this really distorted view of God, but it kind of stemmed also from my distorted view of what parenthood was. You know, for me, parenthood was always this thing where I had to prove myself worthy of my parents' love. And so that translated right over into my relationship with God. Wow. So when you graduate high school, are you still living in Tennessee? So um, right as I was graduating from high school, um, 
I actually became involved in a lot of ministries at my church. Um, I was choir director's granddaughter. I was a church choir's pianist. I was a violin teacher. I led a lot of outreach ministries. And so around that time, as I was trying to figure out what to do with my life, I began having these identity issues where my identity was wrapped up in all of these titles that I wore in the church. And so, of course, the natural thing for me to do in my mind was to become a missionary. And so I ended up going to a missionary school down in Seal, Alabama. And this was a school run by pretty conservative Adventists, I imagine? Yeah, <laughs> really conservative Adventists. Um, for the first time in my life, I was actually getting into some trouble at this school. <laughs> uh, Why? What what kind of trouble were you getting into? Uh, you know, with boys. <laughs> um, at this school, um, you know, in order to court or in order to get to know someone of the opposite sex in the romantic context, you had to get permission from leadership um, to form a special friendship and to court. And once you were given that permission, then you were allowed to get to know that person in a group setting. And I met this guy there, this other student, and there was an attraction, a mutual attraction. And so we started to get to know each other as friends over the phone. And, you know, once leadership found out about that, we were both, um, in a lot of trouble. (laughs) Because you guys were talking on the phone. Because we were talking on the phone, getting to know each other. Yes. So what did they do? They called us in um, before this committee and they were like, you know, you guys have to stop this. You can't communicate. This is against school policy. Um, This is wrong. And so we stopped for a little while, um, but then we started up again. (laughs) And you're 19, 20 years old at this point? Yeah, I was going on 20. Mm Mm-hmm. What did you think about that? I thought I didn't understand it because, you know, we weren't meeting up in secret places to do things that we should not have been doing. Um, But I did understand that, you know, I signed my name on that line and I promised to follow the rules. And so I just needed to follow the rules. But I also couldn't understand why we weren't allowed to get to know each other just as friends. And so um, I got in quite a bit of trouble (laughs) that year. What was the, um, the demographics of the school? Like how many students was it, uh, an interracial school? Was it mostly like, what's, give me the rundown. Yeah. So we have, they have students from all over the world. Um, our, my class was the largest class. We had about 25 students. Um, and, you know, I'm talking Caribbean, Korean, people from all over the United States, um, people from Africa. So it's, it's a pretty good mix. Um, small mm-hmm. classes. Um, leadership, mostly white. Um, but yeah, they, they accept students from all over the place. So after this whole thing, did it sour your experience at the school or did you, did you like what you were learning? I appreciated what I was learning, but it definitely soured the experience for me. Um, I even had situations where one of the leaders came up to me while I was talking to a missionary and told these missionaries, you know, 
Layla would be great for the mission field if only she had the Holy Spirit. That's the only thing that she's missing. And so I was really shocked. Um, Several other incidents occurred and I ended up leaving that program a few months before it ended. How did that hit you when the guy said that, or the the lady, I don't know who it was, said that? Yeah, I was just really shocked. I really didn't know how to feel. I couldn't believe that she said something like that. But I also thought, well, she would know, (laughs) you know, Um, she has to be, you know, holier than me. And she's been in this thing a lot longer than I have. And, you know, she's a missionary. She's dedicated her life to God and service to him. So maybe she sees something that I don't see. Um, It was this real cognitive dissonance experience for me. I was shocked. I disliked it, but I thought perhaps there was some truth in it. So what was the next move when you leave and you don't, you didn't get a chance to finish the whole program? What was the next move? Yeah. So as a result of not finishing the program, I started spiraling into depression and I didn't realize it at the time. But, you know, these titles that I'd had for so long of being, you know, the good girl, the Christian girl, the missionary girl, um, they were no more. And I didn't know who I was without those titles. And so I actually ended up moving to Alabama and I moved in with my mom, which was a really interesting and terrible experience for me. Um, We never spent any amount of time together. Um, I just didn't know how to feel about this experience that I had at the school. I didn't have a job. And the shame of not being, you know, this girl who always had this wonderful reputation just shoved me deeper into this depressive state. And so, yeah, I... I was in a really, really bad place. I ended up entering into an on-again, off-again relationship with this guy that I'd met at another missionary school. And uh, he was staff at that school. And so as staff, he had to let leadership know that he was in a relationship and we had to get courtship counselors. So we'd actually meet once a a week with these counselors and they just kind of like held us accountable. I think we were going through the book Adventist Home together. And I remember after our second session, they told my boyfriend at the time that they didn't think we were compatible. And to me, that just screamed, you aren't worthy of being in a good relationship. And there's something that you need to do more to be worthy of this relationship. It was rejection for me. But he and I decided to persist in our relationship. Um, And we were just kind of on again, off again until that persisting led to him persisting in us having premarital sex. If you're looking for a full breakdown of all these theological concepts that we talk about in this podcast, you could go to PVC Life on YouTube or just search Love Reality. And we did a full wave one. And yet it's uh, it's on the PVC Life's YouTube page and it's free. So if you want a breakdown of what we're talking about, it's called Wave One. Check it out on PVC's YouTube page, and I guarantee you'll be blessed. So 
when you're heading when you're on again off again with this guy did you really believe did you think they're wrong and we really are right for each other or did you think they're right but i don't care i am really attracted to this person I thought they were wrong. I, I specifically told my boyfriend, I said, well, they don't really know me. You know, I don't live here on campus. They haven't gotten an opportunity to see, you know, me practice out what I believe. I think they're wrong and I want to stay with you. And he told me, well, OK, I want to be with you, too. Let's keep doing this thing. So then when this thing happens and you guys uh, have sex, was it um, like you could see it coming? Or was it just like, like, we're heading down a path that we, we need to be careful? Um, or was it just like, like a rebellious thing? Well, for me, it definitely was not a rebellious thing. Um, I, and I really didn't anticipate it coming, honestly. Um, at a young age, I had made this personal commitment to guard my heart and to save myself for my future husband. So premarital mm-hmm. sex wasn't even an option in my mind for a really long time. But somewhere in the process, my no turned to a, well, I've always felt that he hadn't given himself to me completely. So if I have sex with him, maybe then he'll give all of himself over to me. And here again, I was trying to prove that I was worthy of this man's acceptance and of this relationship. And um, we committed the act. Was it almost like Adam and Eve in the garden? Were you like instant shame? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I felt terrible. Um, I felt horrible. I didn't know how to feel. I was attracted to him. But I didn't understand why he didn't respect my boundaries. And furthermore, I thought we shared the same boundaries. You know, we'd spoken about premarital sex and how we both wanted to say that for marriage. So I was just really, really confused. Like, I think back on little Layla and I'm just like, oh, you poor girl. (laughs) You poor girl. Yeah. So... Did the relationship, was it able to keep on going or was that kind of the beginning of the end of it? Well, the relationship kept going. Um, I didn't know it then, but I became pregnant immediately. And uh, we ended up having sex a couple more times. And so I remember finally I had a conversation with him and I said, hey, this is not who I am. This is not what I do. And I just feel so terrible. I felt like... I literally felt like God's back was toward me. Like I'd caused him so much shame and disappointment. And so I told him, I'm going to move back to Alabama. And, you know, hopefully if I put space between us, this thing will stop and we won't keep doing this because, you know, this is not what I want. I don't want to do this. And so I moved back to Alabama and a couple of months later, he came down to visit me and he noticed the changes in my body. And he's like, you're going to take a pregnancy test. And before I finished, you know, with the test, it read positive. And we were just both in tears. And so, so we shed so many tears that night. Um, I was disappointed in myself. You you didn't know. I didn't know. You had no idea. No, I had no clue that I was pregnant. 
I had no symptoms whatsoever. So then when, when the pregnancy hits or the, not like when the, like when the understanding of, yeah, I'm pregnant, when that hit, what was, was God, did the shame, did he double down on the shame with you then? Or what did that add to it? Yeah, it definitely added to it. I just felt like God was so far away from me. I felt like he was disappointed in me. I felt like he didn't want to have anything to do with me because I broke the rules, you know, and with the rules, with breaking rules comes punishment. And so I remember the first thing that I kind of heard in my mind was, ha, look at you now. You're nothing more than a stereotype. You're just like your mom. You're this young, black, unwed mother. Congratulations. <laughs> you know, you really failed God. And so I, I really felt like everything was just over for me. Um, yeah. Was your boyfriend, was he, did he, was he able to comfort you at all? Or was he just like completely just shocked? Like didn't know how to handle it himself. Yeah. The latter, he was in complete shock. He was devastated. Uh, he didn't know what to do, but, um, you know, by the end of the night, he told me he wanted to be there for his child. He didn't want his child growing up without a father. And, you know, he said, we wanted to get married anyway. So I'm glad this mistake happened with you. (laughs) Yeah. Did you want to marry him? I think I thought I wanted to marry him. At At one point, I wanted to marry him. But in that moment, I just wanted nothing to do with him. In fact, I told him, you can go on with your life. You don't have to worry about us. We'll be okay. Just, you know, make something of yourself. Just leave me alone. (laughs) But he told me, no, I want to be there for my child. We're going to get married one day. I wanted to marry you anyway. You know, we're in this relationship. So, um, yeah, a lot of our community pretty much ostracized us. there were those who literally accused me of intentionally planning to get married, uh, to get pregnant. And the shame just about killed me. Um, I didn't feel God. Did anybody, did anybody love on you or, or say, encourage any, any encouragement? We had a handful of friends, literally about four or five friends who were there for us. But, um, other than that, just this community that we had grown to know and to love pretty much ostracized us. Dang. Yeah. What did, what did grandma say? Well, grandma had passed by that time. Um, while I was a student, we found out that she had stage four cancer and six months later she was gone. Mercy. Yeah. So I felt really, really, really alone in the world. So you ended up staying back in Tennessee where you were planning to have this child? Yeah. So um, our friends encouraged us to do a quick wedding. They were like, this child can't be born outside of a marriage. You need to get married as quickly as possible. 
And so that's what we did. We were married within about three months of finding out that I was pregnant. Um, and we moved to a little small town right outside of Chattanooga, Tennessee. And the day after we got married, I knew that I had made the biggest mistake of my life. Um, something had taken place between my husband at the time and a mutual friend of ours. And I was like, oh no, (laughs) God, if you love me at all, please have mercy on me. And I said, but if not, you know, if you don't have mercy, I get it because I broke the rules and this is what I get. And now I have to suffer the consequences. So did, did this cause you to say like, were you still, I mean, I'm asking if you're dedicated to the marriage, you've been married for one day. Yeah. <laughs> um, were you, were you dedicated to it? Were you like, no, we're in this covenant or were you just like, how do I get out? Or was something in between? No, I was dedicated. Um, I'd always wanted to be a wife. I wanted to have a family. And so I was dedicated. I truly thought that God could work a miracle if he wanted to. And I also thought, you know, if he didn't work a miracle, this was just my cross to bear because I broke the rules. And so this terrible marriage, what turned out to be a terrible marriage was what I deserved. You you thought pretty low of yourself. Yeah. Yeah. I did. And that manifested in the way you probably treated him, huh? Um, I wanted the marriage. I wanted, I guess I love the idea of marriage. <laughs> and so I wanted that idea. Um, we did have some good days, but our marriage was really hard from day one. Uh, we both were really young. I was 21 at the time. Uh, he was 24. We didn't have a clue about anything in life. Um, We didn't really have a support system. Our support system was fractured because of this big mistake that we'd made. Um, Our church family was considering disfellowshipping us. We ended up getting put on probation. Um, But, you know, I had these new titles and that those titles were wife and mom. And so I really was determined to be the best that I could be, but I became very zealous, overly zealous in ensuring that we were following all the rules so that we could be blessed by God. Um, I wanted us to be this testimony of how God could heal our disobedience and turn everything around and use it for his glory. And although my husband at the time worked for the church, he had zero interest in following the rules as we knew them. And that was all I wanted. You know, I wanted a husband that would want to lead his family in worship and want to take his family to church. And he had very little interest in doing those things. And so, um, yeah, I became a little bit of a nagger. (laughs) I did. I did. Um, because I found myself married to this stranger. He'd become a stranger just overnight. He was tired of all the rules. He was tired of the church. And I wanted nothing more than for us to keep these rules as a family. 
So there's this famous song that says one is the loneliest number that you'll ever know. Yeah. But two can be as lonely as one. It's the loneliest number since the number one, meaning you can be in a relationship and feel even lonelier than you were when you weren't in a relationship. Mm-hmm. Is that the sentiment? Is that the feeling as in your first few moments of marriage? Yes, that describes it perfectly. I felt so alone. <laughs> you know, I didn't have family. I didn't have church family. I didn't have my husband. And I felt like God had forsaken me because of this mistake. So I definitely felt very alone. Hmm. So you threw yourself into being the mom who knew everything and and the good wife. (laughs) How did that turn out? How, How did it go? Well, six months into the marriage, we were spending nights in separate bedrooms. Sometimes he'd go out and be with his friends all night. His mom came from overseas to spend six months with us. And we had a six month old baby girl. So we weren't really, (laughs) it was just a mess. (laughs) Oh my goodness. Yeah, it was a hot mess. Um, We weren't really making any money. So it was just struggle, 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 struggle. Um, But eventually a job opportunity became available in another part of the state. And so we relocated and we both sat down and we had this talk and we said, okay, this move is going to be a fresh start for us. You know, we're going to get it right, just clean slate. And so it was a new start for us, but in all the worst of ways. Oh, no. Yeah. So six months months in as a new mom and six months in as a new wife, I found myself in a very toxic and violent marriage. Um, There was a lot of abuse taking place. I was gaslit a lot. I was told that if I was a more godly wife, then things would be better in our home. And I just soaked up all those lies. Um, I was a stay-at-home mom, so I would spend the day just praying and fasting and pleading. And I, I remember I used to write all of these different ministries and I'd use a pseudonym, but I was like, please pray for my family. Please pray that God will work a miracle and that our family will be restored. I didn't know how to deal with the situation. It never crossed my mind to leave. It never crossed my mind to like press charges or anything. I just really didn't know how to deal with the situation. And sadly, I still thought, well, this is what I get for breaking the rules. You know, this is just what I'm going to have to deal with for the rest of our married life. So did the new move, when you guys moved away to a different part of the state, did that, did that bring any salt, like any newness or was it just new, same, same old, different place and you're away from, you're just by yourselves now? Like what, what did that bring? Yeah, we were isolated. We didn't have community. We didn't have friends. And yeah, that's just where a lot of the abuse started. And I began to experience a very toxic, violent marriage. So what happened? Well, about two and a half years into the marriage, I realized that things were not going to change. 
And if I cared about my life, if I cared about my daughter's life, and by this time I was pregnant with our second child, and if I cared for her life, I needed to leave. And so I called a friend and I told her, please come get me. You know, this is what's been going on for the past two and a half years. And my friend's like, oh my goodness, I'm coming to get you right now. So she hopped in the car. She drove um, all night to come get me, my daughter, my pregnant belly, my two suitcases. And we left. And I was crushed. I thought, oh, again, this is what I get, you know? This is what I deserve, but I feel so terrible because now I'm destroying my children's lives. They're going to grow up without a father. And I thought, you know, God, if you're still there, if you love me, can you still please work a miracle? But if not, I get it. Like I chose to disobey and this is what I get. Did you believe he really was still there? I had to believe that he was there. Because life was just terrible. Um, It's really a terrible situation to be in an abusive relationship, in an abusive marriage, and to hear from all those around you that it's your responsibility and it's your duty to stay. And that, you know, if you're a good enough Christian, then you can win your husband over to the Lord. And it's a terrible feeling of not knowing what to do, but knowing that something is desperately, desperately wrong. So I had to believe that God was there. And I did believe he was there. And I was just clinging to the little bit of hope that was left inside of me. Wow. So you have your second child. Um, was there a plan? Like it in your mind, it was just over, over, like you didn't want to see this man again? Or were you like, I'm, we're just going to take a break? What was the plan moving forward, do, do you think? So for me, the plan moving forward was, at the end of the day, this is my husband. And if you go to counseling, I'll go to counseling with you and I'll come back. But if you don't go to counseling, I can't come back. And he came to the hospital um, the day after our youngest daughter was born, and he said he wanted a divorce. Were you relieved? I was terrified. <laughs> I had no, I, like for me, that was just it. You know, I had these two daughters, but I had no idea what life would be going forward. Um, I was really sad. I was terrified. I was relieved. I was upset. I wanted him to fight for the marriage. I wanted him to choose me. You know, these things I've been struggling with since childhood. I wanted him to choose the family. I wanted him to choose his daughters. But um, yeah, I was just a hodgepodge of all the emotions. So what, what was the move? What did you do? Well, I stayed there in Huntsville, Alabama. I was back in Huntsville. And the next three years were filled with me just trying to survive and trying to take care of my babies. 
I eventually got a job. I got our own place. I got a car. I was going to church, but I was experiencing a lot of hurt from church and ministry people. Um, I remember someone saying, well, we heard that these are the things that you did when you were at that missionary school. You did X, Y, Z. So, you know, you got to be careful. Look at you now. God rewards accordingly. And so. People said that stuff? Yeah, they did to my face. <laughs> Daggum. Yeah. What, what, what's the goal there when someone says that? Like, you don't. Like, what is the goal? I don't know why. I don't know why. Why do people say stuff like this? Do you know why? Maybe I don't know. I don't know. Like, what are they? What's the? What are they trying to like to shame you into being like? Yeah, you're right. I did mess up. Like, what do they want from you? Yeah, I think just that acknowledgement, but also to make themselves feel better. You know, um, and you know that's what the Pharisees did. You know, they had to make themselves feel better by going around and shaming other people and and. That's what these people were doing to me. And yet you were still in the building. Yeah. P- praise the Lord. I, I mean, I don't know. Like I'm saying praise the Lord for your faithfulness to that there is something about him that is good, that you're in there even though these people are, I mean... Yeah, I I don't even know how to explain it. Like, wow. Yeah, (laughs) that was God. That was nothing but God. So I'm still going to church. I'm taking my kids to church. But by that time, you know, all of my titles, including wife, were shot. And I was just grasping at air and this small amount of faith that I still had in God. But I hadn't come into contact with truth yet. So I was still trying to satisfy, you know, my deep needs of being wanted, of being chosen and of someone claiming me. And so I would pour so much into all my friends. I would invite people from off the street who were struggling to come to my apartment so that I could cook for them. And oftentimes I would be preparing the last bit of food that I had in my cupboards. And it made me feel good. It made me feel like I was needed. And these were great things. I loved helping these people. But later I would come to find out that the deeper intent was rooted in all of these lies that Satan had been feeding me from the time that I was born. And at that time, I began to experience loss after loss after loss after loss. I lost my job. I lost my apartment. I lost some friends. I made less than good decisions in some of my friendships. A few of my friends betrayed me. And just like one by one, all of these pedestals, all of these titles, they were just like smashed to ashes. And then I came to a point where I grew tired of the monotony of church and I stopped attending church. And I just got to the end of myself and I was exhausted. So you you thought, I'll try out what the world has to offer for a little bit and see if that has anything? Yeah, yeah. I would go out on Friday nights with some of my friends and we'd go to the club and, you know, started drinking a little bit, but it just got really old very, very quickly. 
But the the guilt has gone away, huh? No. Like now you're just like you're overcorrect, or you're still feeling guilty. Oh yeah, all of those things are still very near and just ever present. Mm-hmm. And I just tried to numb those feelings with the excitement of clubbing and hanging out with all of these people that were really bad for me. And it, like I said, that scene got really old very quickly, and all of those feelings still remained. What was what were you trying to pour into your girls at this point? I was just trying to survive. <laughs> and I wanted them to know that they yeah. were loved. And I'd still send them to church with their God grandparents. But, you know, I'd tell them, you guys go to church, have a great time, learn all you can. But, you know, mommy's tired. I'm going to stay home. I, I can't do church anymore. And I just wanted to give them a good foundation in church and I wanted them to know that they were loved by me. Mm. Man. So as as these decisions that you're making and you're seeing kind of the the result is is not not great, not ideal. Mm-hmm. Um what what was the answer what 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 were you turning to was it where was the hope coming from the hope was coming from all of these memory verses that i learned as a kid the hope was coming from you know knowing that somehow god still loved me and even though he was really disappointed in me, I believed he was so disappointed in me. He still loved me and he wanted me to, you know, make it to heaven. The hope also was in seeing my grandparents again one day in heaven. And that's what kind of kept me going for a little while. It, you still had assurance that you were going to be in heaven. Then. I hope so. <laughs> you were hoping. Yeah. So what, 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 how, how long ago was this, this part of in Huntsville here? So this is 2016. 2016. Mm-hmm. So then what happens? Well, I had come completely undone. <laughs> I was exhausted. I was done with everyone. I was disappointed in myself. Um, I didn't feel like leaving, you know, I'd lost my apartment. And so I was staying with someone who was like an aunt to me. I didn't leave her house. I was just done with everything. And in that moment, a Facebook friend reached out to me and we had this long conversation. And at the end of the conversation, he asked if I wanted to study the Bible with him. And I told him, yeah, most deaf, you know, I believe in God. <laughs> I'm just not reading the Bible right now, but sure, I'll, I'll study the Bible with you. So we started studying the Bible, just reading the Bible in context. We started with Galatians. We started with Ephesians. We started with Colossians. And I remember slamming my Bible shut so many times saying, oh my goodness, I've never seen these things before. They can't be true. You know, what do you mean Christ set us free? What do you mean I'm no longer a slave to all of the works? And what do you mean I've been justified by faith? I don't get it. What do you mean I just have to believe in Jesus and his death and what that means for those who choose to believe in him? And so I told my friend, hey, 
I can't study the Bible with you anymore because it's not really aligning with everything that I was taught in the conservative Adventist world. So this is too much because if I lose now this foundation of what I had been taught was truth, then I was definitely lost and there was just no good to be found anywhere. So he just kind of chuckled and he was like, okay, well, whenever you're ready to study again, just let me know. And so, you know, I prayed and I'm like, okay, God, you know, if you're there, I know you're there, but if you're there, just know I do really love you. I just, I can't study the Bible anymore because I'm going to lose my mind. Like this is too good to be true, but it doesn't resemble anything that I was taught growing up in this world. So I said, I'm going to take a break from reading the Bible. I'm going to take a break from reading Ellen G. White. I just like, I'm done. Please have mercy on me and know that I love you. (laughs) So you stopped reading it because it just wasn't aligning with the old way that you had been taught. Not like it wasn't aligning with your current experience. It just, it didn't match up with the heavy conservative upbringing. Yeah. Can you believe that? (laughs) I was like, oh, this is too good to be true, but I can't read it anymore because it's got to be wrong. It doesn't match up with everything I've been taught. Yeah. That's wild. So wild. (laughs) Man alive. So, um, but the conservative thing or did you believe that the, the conservative way you had been taught was completely right? You just hadn't made the mistakes? Like, it wasn't that what you had learned wasn't right. It just, it was your fault. Is that how you thought about it? Yeah, I thought that it was truth and that I had made this gross mistake. And because of that, I was suffering the consequences. And I needed to find a way to get back to that conservative side even though there were certain aspects that no longer felt good. What was the stuff that didn't feel good? The judgment for one (laughs) from other people from those conservative circles that didn't feel good. Um, I remember the day that I started wearing pants and I was going to post a picture on social media and I was terrified because I was like, Oh no, what are people going to think? And sure enough, someone messaged me and she was like, you know, I'm concerned about your spiritual walk because I see you're wearing pants now. Is is everything okay? Are are you all right? And I was like, oh, God help me. Like this has to be true, but I cannot take all the judgment anymore. I just can't. Is this after you were married and had your children that you posted the pants picture? Yeah, this was after. Mm-hmm. Oh my goodness. Yeah. So did you ever catch yourself being judgmental of like when people like women would wear pants or something like that? Or did that not sit right with you from Jump Street? When I was in it, and I only realized this afterward, but when I was in it, I definitely was judging. I thought, oh, well, they haven't reached this level yet. And this is the level that spirit wants them. And I just need to be a really good example and sit down and give these Bible studies and help them see the truth. So yeah, there was definitely that judgment, that judgmental element um, in my experience with others. 
Oh man, I just want to give a public service announcement. Please do. <laughs> don't don't ever text, email, Facebook message, Instagram message anybody about what they are wearing if you don't know their heart and they don't know your heart. Mm-hmm. Like, don't. Don't do it. <laughs> Please don't. Like, love them first. Yeah. And then after you love them, still don't talk to them about their pants. <laughs> right on. Just, if you're listening to this, don't talk to anyone about their pants. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, I don't know. Like, we've got to do better. We've got to do better. Did any, did when, when someone messaged, like, did you consider, like, maybe I'm, maybe I should not wear these pants? Or were you just really hurt? I was really hurt because by that time I had gone through this abusive marriage and people knew my husband and I were no longer together, but they weren't checking on me to say, hey, we notice, you know, there's, there are no pictures with you guys. Is everything okay? Are you good? Do you need prayer? Is there anything that I can do? Can I listen? And so to experience that lack of concern during one of the darkest seasons of my life juxtaposed with this over concern for all the wrong reasons was deeply hurtful, deeply hurtful. And so what happened was the few times that I found myself in these conservative circles, I would put on skirts and I'd put on dresses. And then as soon as I left their their presence, I'd put on pants again. Man, this is a roller coaster. So after this whole thing and you're, uh, you're, you stop studying the Bible Mm -hmm. with, with dude, what, what's the next move? What, where, where are you headed? So this is 2016 and the next three years were filled with massive healing for me. And I was just kind of forced into being in solitude. And in that solitude, I was forced to meet all the lies that Satan had been feeding me since I was a child. Um, All of these lies that I accepted as truth. And the lies were, you're not good enough. You have to prove your worth. You have to do something to be worthy of love and acceptance. You're only loved when you do the right things. God is displeased with you. You're experiencing all of this suffering because you made two wrong choices. No good will ever come to you. No one good will want you. You're worthless. And sadly, I believed all of these things. And I was forced to reckon with these things and not just those lies, but I was also experiencing a lot of PTSD from the marriage. And For some reason, for me, that PTSD just kind of solidified all the lies. And so I was in a really, really, really dark place. Um, I was having a lot of anxiety attacks. I was experiencing anxiety-induced vertigo. I ended up in the ER, I think, twice. And I had a PTSD meltdown. And so... When I was in the ER and after they'd run all the tests, the doctor looked at me and he said, you are perfectly healthy. You should live to be about 300 years old. 
you're probably just experiencing some anxiety and a little depression. So, you know, just try a little yoga, try a little meditation. If those things don't help, then we'll get you on meds. And that just made matters worse because I was like, oh, no, (laughs) you know, I believe in God. Christians don't get anxiety. Christians don't get depression. Like, oh, I am doomed. You know, all of this because I made some poor choices. And um, yeah, I just I feel really sorry (laughs) for that girl back then. But yeah, that's that's what I was dealing with. How did you start reckoning that they were lies? Like, how did that, because you said there was healing. Yeah. How did you start seeing that they were lies, and how did the healing start? Well, after that trip to the ER, I found a therapist, and we unpacked a lot of things like codependency, healthy boundaries, emotional intelligence. And I would just order all these books and highlight every line thinking, oh my goodness, this is my problem. Oh my goodness, this is my problem. And so I grew a lot during those years and I'm really grateful that for that experience. And it wasn't until 2019 that I picked up my Bible again and I said, all right, God, I'm ready to give this another try. And so I started with the New Testament. And as I began to read, it was like I was reading the word for the first time ever. So many truths just aligned so quickly in my mind. And Spirit was leading me to the gospel and He was teaching me. And I was excited about what I was reading. I felt like I had been loved. I knew I was reading that I had been loved since before the world was created. I was discovering that I didn't need to do anything to prove my worth to God. And I learned that the Father saw me as this good and perfect thing in Him. Spirit was showing me that there was nothing that I had done or nothing that I could do to make the Father love me any less. So I realized I was deeply and incomprehensibly loved. And I saw this as priceless news. I remember just wanting to run and tell everyone. And I was like, man, if you could just get clear on your identity and on your value, it will transform your entire life. And literally in those moments, the shame, the guilt, the regret, the victimization, like it just all disappeared. And I recognize that, you know, my father didn't want me carrying this yoke and heavy burden of shame, of guilt and and regret. And all those lies just disappeared immediately. And I knew that, you know, even though my mother didn't choose me, even though my father didn't choose me, even though my husband didn't choose to love me and to protect me, that the Lord had already adopted me into his family. And so I was so excited. I started going back to church again and people would walk up to me and they were like, you seem so different. What did, what do you know? How do you, how did you get like this? Like, can you teach me? I don't know what it is, but can you just teach me what you know? And so I was just able to break down the gospel to them right there at church. And I no longer attended church to be filled. I didn't go to church from this place of lack, but I went as one who had already been filled and loved on by God. So this just came by you just reading the Bible with a a different lens? Yeah, just reading the Bible with a different lens and asking Spirit to show me and to teach me. 
were you surprised when you were reading this stuff? Absolutely. Like as you the New Testament? <laughs> I was surprised. I was excited. I was shocked, but I was also afraid because once again, it kind of went against the grain of this legalistic upbringing. And so um, I remember one Friday, a few months into this journey, I prayed and I said, Father, am I going off on the deep end of this thing? Is the gospel really this good? Are you sure? Is it this simple? You know, is this a sure thing? Are there any other people who are waking up to this good news? And so I prayed and I was like, if I'm on a right path, I trust you to lead me to others who are waking up to the same truth. And I prayed that on a Friday. That night I got on YouTube and I shared this testimony in one of the Bible study groups. I am so convinced that spirit was touching the algorithm because somehow I ended up watching a video by Love Reality. And it was from their LRT back in 2019 at PVC. And I ended up watching all the videos available from that tour. And I was just growing more and more excited by the minute. And at the end of it all, I was just literally jumping up and down with joy, like, oh my goodness, these people found the gospel too. Like, it really is amazing. It really is true. There are other people who are waking up. I'm not alone in this thing. And so, yeah, that's when I discovered Love Reality back in 2019, 2020. I followed all the social media outlets. I hopped onto a few Bible studies. I started listening to this amazing podcast called Death to Life. <laughs> and, um, you know, I like to say I became a gospel junkie. How did you, man, maybe you can't even explain this, but how did you get the new lens? Spirit, you know, I just prayed. Um, I wanted to walk in truth and I was tired of existing in the same unhealthy cycles. And so I just said, spirit, lead me, show me what's true. And it was just as if the words were jumping off the page and coming together to make sense in my mind. And it was as though I was reading the Bible for the first time and seeing it so clearly for the first time. So when you're watching Jonathan at PVC, had you understood freedom from sin before that? Or was that like a new, like the way he was talking about it? Was did that sound different than what you had heard before? So it was different from what I'd heard before, but it was the truth that spirit was leading me in. So, you know, there were about maybe three or four months that I was just studying on my own and spirit was just revealing all of this to me. And I was just like, oh, wow. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. So when I heard Jonathan break it down and, you know, Adam one, Adam two and everything, I was just like, wait, he knows this too. <laughs> you know, who else knows this? Who else is coming to this, to these conclusions? So spirit was teaching me and leading me step by step. What are one of the, what are some of the things that you just kind of grabbed onto and like, okay, this is a paradigm shift. And like when you're talking about um, all these things that were revealed to you about codependency mm -hmm. and all these abandonment issues and seeing the lies, like what were some of the things that jumped out like you were doing this because of this? Yeah. So 
I recognized that I was choosing unhealthy relationships in my life because those people needed me. And I had this deep, deep need to be needed. But when I read in scripture that, you know, I was already chosen, that God had chose me. It wasn't this thing that just happened because all of a sudden God looked down and was like, oh, the world's pretty sinful. Let me send Jesus down to save everyone. No, but before the world was created, God had already chosen me. God had already made plans for me to be part of the royal family. God had a plan for me. God had given me everything that I needed. I recognized that I didn't need the approval of other people. I recognized that I didn't need to be chosen by other people because the one who loves me before the world was created had already chosen me. And he called me a daughter. He called me into royalty. So that's just one example. So Joseph is in what is he in prison for like like a total of 13 years. Yeah. Yeah. From when he's a slave from like from when he gets thrown in the pit to where um his brothers show up. I think he's almost 40 years old mm. when um, his brothers show up and there's this moment and his dad realizes that he's alive. Mm. And we were talking on, you were there, you were at the Bible study yesterday. We we're talking about how that sounds like a long time, mm-hmm. um, but it's all relative. As you're looking back at, these, I, as you're telling me this story, uh, I think I asked you to come on the podcast because I saw something that you posted on Facebook and I was like, what? This is crazy. Yeah. And so as I'm, as I'm hearing the story, I don't know anything about you. I, I don't even think I really read the, the Facebook post too well, but it's like, there's a long time of just pain. Yeah. There's a long time of hurt. Uh, and as you look back on that and the amount of time that it was, how do you reflect on that and to where you are now sitting in this truth of the gospel? Honestly, I wouldn't trade anything because I feel that if I hadn't gone through those experiences, I would not have almost been forced (laughs) to deal with the lies and forced to walk in truth and walk in freedom. And it took 29 years for me, but I'm so happy now. (laughs) I am like so, so free. I'm not enslaved to guilt, to shame, to feeling like I'm not worthy or not deserving. And I wouldn't trade it for anything. And part of what I shared on Facebook was that one of the beautiful things that I love about walking with spirit is that the spirit is committed to taking us higher and higher in this freedom. You know, spirit is committed to bathing us with truth. And it's up to us whether we choose to accept it and to walk it out. And so 
I got into more freedom about a week ago. I was listening to Joel's testimony on the podcast. And when he began speaking about codependency, I thought, oh man, I can relate to that. I've definitely struggled with that in the past. And at that very moment, Spirit spoke so very clearly to me and said, are you ready to stop feeding that lie? And I thought, what lie? So I kept listening as Joel talked about different aspects of codependency and his need to um, for people and to have relationships with people. And right then and there, Spirit revealed the lie to me by bringing a conversation to my mind. So I'm a single woman and I'm mothering on my own, but I would very much like to be married again one day. And so I was having this conversation with a single dad. Sorry, there's a train passing in the background. <laughs> You're good. I can't even hear. But I was having a conversation with the single dad and we were just kind of commiserating with each other over our shared state of single parenting and how much we would love to have a partner again and how much we desire to serve with our partner and how we both felt that our families would feel complete once that partner was in our lives. And so as I was thinking about that conversation, that spirit brought to my mind, you know, spirit asked me, are you ready to stop feeding that lie? Marriage is a good thing and it's okay to have that desire and you will have the desires of your heart. But Jesus didn't create you. He didn't die on a cross. He didn't rise again for you to be codependent. So are you ready to stop feeding that lie? And then I was just bathed in truth. And that truth was, you and your daughters are a good thing now. You and your daughters are a complete thing now. You and your daughters have been given everything required for life and godliness now. And again, like the weight just fell off instantly. And that was just last week. And I was filled with so much joy and peace. And in that moment, I just became so giddy and immensely happy at the thought of mothering my children and just became elated over our little family of three. And I felt this energy just coursing through me, encouraging me to carry on. And so for this stage in my life, walking in that freedom looks like resting and dancing in the truth that my daughters and I are living out the most beautiful love story ever. And that story is that my daughters and I are loved, we are chosen, we are worthy, we are complete princess daughters who've been called to a royal priesthood. And because of his faithfulness, we lack no good thing. Wow. Um, Layla, your story is, you've been loved and so many people could hear what you've gone through and, and just try to convince you that it's okay to feel bad for yourself. And from what I'm hearing from you, I don't feel like you think that's an option anymore because you've been given everything. It sounds like. Yeah, I'm complete. <laughs> Absolutely. So if you had a chance and you get to jump in the time machine and you get to go back to the 
the hills of Tennessee and talked to this girl who had just come home and just realized that she's pregnant. And you just got to get her and you get to hold her face and, and say some things to her. What are you telling sweet old Layla? I'm telling that little girl, that young adult, don't dare think about giving up because God is looking down on you. Your father's looking down on you and he loves you so, so very much. And he's promised you a life of joy, a life of fulfillment, a life of freedom in him. Just keep walking in truth. Keep walking in truth and trust that he will lead you into all truth. And it's beautiful on the other side. Wow. Thanks so much for coming on. Uh, You're a testimony that God is love. And it's such an encouragement to me. So I just want to say thank you. Thank you. Got me singing like glory. Yeah. It got me telling my story. Know that your love is pouring on me. And love is pouring on me. River flowing in and never ends. More than life, more than me, more than just pretend. And you can feel it freedom from within. Free to fly, be the child that you've always been. Yeah. Thank you so much for listening to the show today. We would love it if you could share this so that people could hear uh, more of these stories. And a way you can do that is to rate us on Apple Podcasts. Give us a high rating. If, if you give us less than a five star, I'm inclined to believe that you're not really rocking with us. So give us a five star rating and, and throw a comment in there. If you're going to talk about us on social media, go ahead and use the hashtag death to life. And let's get that hashtag going. This podcast is a production of Love Reality. And if you want more information about Love Reality, go ahead and check us out at lovereality.org. This show's produced by Tyler Morrison and Katie Prusha. The sound and editing is done by Addison Collingsworth and Eddie Cornejo. And then the Johnny on the spot is Annabelle Harper. And the artwork is done by Felix Gassman. Thank you so much for listening. Love y'all. Appreciate y'all. Thank you.